Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicNPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest is Teresa Gilarducci, who is author of How to Retire with Enough Money and How to Know What Enough Is. Today we will discuss her book. Teresa is an expert on retirement, pensions, and personal savings, and the Bernard L. and Irene Schwartz Chair in Economic Policy Analysis at the New School for Social Research. She has a Ph.D. in Economics from the University of California, Berkeley, and taught previously at the University of Notre Dame. Visit Teresa on the web at TeresaGillarducci.org. That's Teresa, G-H-I-L-A-R-D-U-C-C-I dot O-R-G. And on Twitter at T. Gillarducci. That's T-G-H-I-L-A-R-D-U-C-C-I. Teresa, welcome. Thank you. This retirement topic seems to be taking over, but the numbers are just staggering. Whether it's 10,000 people turning 65 each day for the next 20 years, or 75 million baby boomers in the country. What are we talking about? Are these numbers true? Um, Well, it's absolutely true that the baby boomers are aging. You know, so this biggest cohort we've ever had in our country, 75 million people, are just um, now turning 70. Um, There are, most of them are still in their 60s, so that number is right. 10,000 people will be returned, will be turning the age in which most people retire. So that's a big issue. Um, the, the biggest worry I have is that we have changed our retirement system in the past 30 years. So that big generation is not prepared for retirement. And I don't use the word loosely, but we are headed for a retirement crisis. So I wrote my book not to document this retirement crisis, but to really help each individual in that, you know, who will face their own personal crisis to mitigate it, you know, to help themselves, and also um, to lift up the point that we're all in this together and there's some things that we can do collectively to help ourselves. The numbers that I've also seen, and I think you talk about that in the book, that because the system has changed Many people are confused, and many people historically, but now even more so, are not setting money aside, sometimes because they just literally can't afford to set any of their salary aside into a plan if their company offers a 401k, or if they're having to do it on their own because they're struggling to make ends meet. What's the picture like? Is yeah. this really the situation as yeah. well? Yeah, so um, there are three things that a good um, country does um, in order to help people um, save, save or plan for their retirement. A, a good national policy helps people save for their retirement, accumulate it. They help them invest it well, efficiently, you know, without um, paying too high fees and getting the highest rate of return. And a good national policy helps people take that money out in a way that makes sense, you know, to guarantee money for the rest of, of, of your life. And our country really has failed at doing all three of those things. And the, by changing um, the, the retirement system, 
towards a group-based um, traditional pension system, towards a do-it-yourself system by depending upon voluntary 401ks and IRAs. Now, that system, that superstructure, uh, requires people and their employers to decide really basically each and every paycheck, whether or not they should set money aside for 30 years. And half the people don't do that. Half of the employers don't sponsor them. The second thing that system requires people to do is to decide where to invest it. And really where to invest money for the long term is something best left to professionals, sort of like dental work or um, electrical work. Um, But in our system, Individuals are expected to do it themselves. But then the whole other problem, which is what do you do with $100,000 to make it last for the rest of your life? So the reason why I belabored um, what our system is requiring individuals to do is to point out that it's almost impossible. That humans aren't built um, to sacrifice current spending and needs and wants, you know, for, you know, for something that you'll need and want in 30 years, we are quite reasonably more focused on the short and medium term. We aren't, unless we're trained, to be investors. And even if we were, we don't have the kind of muscle and power in the investment world to get low fees, you know, because of just one individual investor. In the investment world, it's much, much better if you're big. And there are no vehicles in the private sector that help people annuitize their income. But... What has happened is that you, you've asked the question in a way that makes it seem like it's the individual's either fault or inability to save. Um, now you really emphasize that people don't have enough money to save, but that's, that's never been true. There's never been a period in our, in our, um, in our economic history where everyone who was so rich and they had enough money that that's the reason they saved. In the past, let's take World War II, we emerged out of World War II, and there were truck drivers and warehouse workers and janitors and garment workers and um, farm workers in California. They didn't have very much money. They lived uh, paycheck to paycheck. But since they had a union, that union organized a, a pension system so that without thinking about it, they got their wages and they were low, but they also had pennies put into their pension, pennies put into their health care, some amount of money for training, so that the system in the small um, helped people save for retirement even though nobody felt rich. So let's not blame the victim for not accumulating enough or blaming affordability as a reason. The problem is this do-it-yourself voluntary system. And we need to um, not go back to the traditional pensions because they're not coming back, but we need a national solution um, um, to our retirement system. We really need a universal um, pension system. And so my book talks about what people can do before we get there. One of the trends that we're seeing is that there's been a decrease or perhaps a halt in hiring at the entry level because so many jobs have been offshored, whether it's manufacturing or IT. Many of jobs that were onshore in the past have been either offshored or disappeared because of automation, etc. 
That's and, one problem. But so if we combine that with this turning of 65, these 10,000 people turning 65 mm-hmm. every day that we're talking about, mm-hmm. that must be creating a shift in our yeah. employment base at the national level. Mm-hmm. What is happening? Do you, do you yeah, have a no. picture there that you can share with us? No, Elaine, I can, I can tell you're really analytical. Um, and you are trying to find out why. You know, why is it that our parents and our grandparents were prepared for retirement, but this big um, generation is not. And you've pointed out that maybe it's because wages have stagnated and there and there just isn't that margin to save. You have now um, hypothesized, and you are a good analyst, um, that it must be some kind of major shift in the in the employment structure. You know that has has caused us not to be prepared for retirement. And all those things are going on. Wages are stagnating, partly because of the employment shift, partly because of the decline in union power, partly because of the rise in some industries that are able to pay managers and shareholders a lot of money. All that is true. But the major problem is the shift away from Social Security and traditional pensions towards a voluntary 401k um, system. That is really the major cause. At least you haven't um, proffered what most people say is that somehow people just want, they're more hedonistic, that this generation is spending too much, because that totally is not the problem. I think part of where I was trying to head was, is there any indication that these potential retirees, these people who are reaching 65 or 62 or whatever age they choose to retire, are staying longer in the workforce, that the companies, since they're not hiring people at the entry level and they're losing a lot of retirees, which is a a detriment to the employment, to the companies rather, losing people who have company history and who have all this experience is affecting many companies in a negative way. Is there any indication that they're keeping these older employees longer and that this potentially could help those people plan better for retirement? Yeah. Um, You bring up a really great issue about changes in the structure of the labor market, basically. The labor force, you know, because, um, because of employer demand for younger workers, you know, versus this the aging of the workforce um, let me let me take some of your points you know in um, in pieces um, one is that it is true that older people are staying longer on the job but it's not necessarily because the employers are valuing them um, or they have a lot of experience or they're very highly productive um, there's actually a lot of evidence that employers are slashing their wages and that after age like 45, if you stay with your employer, you really don't get a raise in overinflation. The reason why people are staying longer on the job is because they don't have a decent pension. And the only way that they can handle their older years is actually to, um, to get more wages. So their retirement years are spent working only because they don't have pensions. So a lot of the reasons why people are staying longer on the job is because they need to um, to have money for retirement, not because the employers are especially valuing them. In fact, we're seeing a, um, 
a big problem with age discrimination, especially among older, you know, for, uh, against older women, because employers are finding that technology and the change in products and, and outsourcing and all of the things that they have available to them because of technology is actually making older workers less valuable to them. And now uh, employers are um, hiring at the at the lower levels, but not if the not if the jobs are gummed up by older workers staying. So I think that's increasingly going to be a problem. That younger workers are going to have a hard time moving up uh, the ladder and also being hired um, because. 70-year-olds are clinging to their jobs. That's especially true in some industries. Um, but the, uh, the, um, the, the other problem is, is of contingent work, you know, more and more gig working, more and more self-employment. And people who go from contract to contract, these 1099 workers, are especially at risk for not saving enough for retirement because their income is so uncertain the only kind of savings you're going to, to really concentrate on are savings for the emergency. So I think the biggest problems that are going on in the, in the labor force is, is a increase in contingent work or 1099 work. Um, his, the Hispanic labor force um, faces special problems given this shift from tra- traditional pensions to DC pensions and given a, a more volunt given the employer's more casual and voluntary um, attitude towards providing a pension. Um, Would you like me to talk about those problems? Of course. Um, So I've done, actually one of the few researchers that have looked at Hispanic preparedness uh, for retirement. I didn't go into details in this book, um, but this book is certainly relevant, you know, for anybody in that community who who knows that they're not prepared for retirement and and need help. So Hispanic um, communities um, really face an unfriendly and sometimes hostile environment to save for retirement. Um, First of all, um, Hispanics are less likely to be employed by government um, entities, the federal or state government, and those are the places that have um, pensions. Um, They're less likely to be in manufacturing, again, a a sector that's most likely to have a pension. Um, Hispanic workers are more likely to work for themselves, and therefore there's no real good structure available for them to easily and consistently save for money. The hostile environment is in the home buying market, and that's where a lot of people find security for for their retirement is by owning a home and paying it off. Um, Time and time again, the Federal Reserve has, and others have found evidence of downright um, uh, race discrimination, ethnic discrimination against Hispanics in terms of charging them higher um, interest rates and, and charging um, higher, um, requiring um, higher down payments. So if a family and a worker is not accumulating assets in a, in a home and will either have a big mortgage or have to be a renter in retirement, that's an extra an extra risk. Um, the other risk is that um, immigrant communities, uh, and some Hispanic workers are um, members of immigrant communities, are uh, find that they have family obligations in the country of origin. I've looked at, at actually issues about sending money back to Mexico to family members. Um, that, that, that tends to get people not to be 
part of a regular American-based financial system. Um, so I, also Hispanics are not as likely to be unionized, and, and unionized employers, you know, provide a superstructure, you know, for safe and consistent and effective um, savings for re- for retirement. So what I have found in my research is for the Hispanic community, they need two things. They really need uh, financial regulators um, to make sure that people are protected against um, predators, financial advisors, uh, for-profit firms that will gladly take 401k or IRA money but, but not pay a good return and charge too high fees. Hispanic communities also are um, disproportionately reliant on Social Security, Medicaid, and Medicare. And to the extent that um, political weakness for those programs um, uh, is getting worse, the weakness is getting worse, then Hispanic communities are, are really affected. So what one of the first lines of, of protection for an Hispanic community for retirement is um, to keep Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid strong. When we look at the overall population across the board, the demographics of the country are clearly Mm -hmm. shifting. Mm -hmm. And the non-Hispanic white, for lack of a better title, population Mm -hmm. is, at this point, the largest aging segment, if I follow the demographics correctly. Mm -hmm. And Hispanics, along with other ethnic groups, will be catching up. So these issues affect everyone, even for those people who are entering the workforce now, as you say in the book. The solution is easy if they start now, Mm -hmm. but they still have to start. Yeah. And for those, as you say, who are in their 40s or 50s or 60s who have not begun, there is a real crisis looming. Yeah. What? Yes. How do you retire with enough money? This yeah. do-it-yourself system seems incredibly intimidating, even for university yes. graduates, even for mm-hmm. professionals, folks yeah. with master's degrees, master's in business degrees. Yeah. Playing yeah. the stock market for many people is like playing Russian roulette. You have no idea whether you're going to land on that bullet. Mm-hmm. What? How can you... handle this in a way that is manageable because this isn't just about wealth. This is about safety and health. So well said. Saving for retirement is not about getting rich. That's why I fought my publisher to title it How to Retire with Enough, you know, not How to Retire Rich or How to Retire with Plenty. I want everyone to be able to retire with enough money so they live in dignity. You know, if I, I really wanted to tell how to retire with dignity. Um, and so the Hispanic community is also younger. And so when I talk to the Hispanic community, I'm talking to people who are relatively new to the labor force. And this is my advice. Know that the system is unfriendly and not as helpful as it's been in the past. That doesn't mean that you're beaten down by it, but you just have to be aware of a couple of, of roadblocks and tricks and, and overcome them. The first thing is to realize just the pure math that if you start saving for retirement, you know, you put that money away in a safe individual retirement account or a safe 401k account, that you hardly will miss it. 
if you put a dollar in now, if you're in your 20s, um, that will grow to over um, $6 without you having to sacrifice any current spending. So even if you have low incomes, you have a medical emergency, um, you can still motor along with relatively little amount of pain if you start early. It's quite surprising how much a little early um, you know, will, will grow because of compound interest. It's, it's really important um, for younger people. And as you say, more and more younger people will be non-white Hispanics. Um, when they enter the labor force or when they become an adult, is to start saving for retirement. It doesn't mean you should, they shouldn't start saving for emergencies um, and, and for medium-term goals like buying a house um, and doing whatever they can to not go into debt. But it's important to carve just a little bit aside for retirement and nothing else. Because of the magic of compound interest, and it truly is magic, uh, if you only sacrifice your current spending by 5%, then after a couple of paychecks, you won't even miss it, um, that money will grow to an adequate retirement. Whereas if you wait until you're 50, you have to actually sacrifice almost 50%. So time is on your side. We don't give our young people very much advantage. We laden them with student debt. We're handing a labor market that's very uncertain, that has low wages, but at least young people have time, and they should let the investment world and finances um, and the accumulation of investment earnings work for them. So starting young is the smartest thing that people can do, even if it's not a lot of money. Now, how do you find the place to, to start? For a lot of us, suspicion and distrust is the healthy attitude towards the investment world and towards the IRA and 401k world. So with, um, you know, with your, um, you know, goggle, you know, your, your sharp glasses on and your magnifying, make sure you find a safe place to save your money. And these days, I recommend um, Vanguard. Not because I have anything to do with Vanguard, but because it's the only um, investment company out there that is what's called a mutual company, meaning that all the investors are also automatically owners of the company. There isn't a, a board of shareholders that want to maximize profits. The shareholders are the account holders. So the only way that they deal with their profits is to either have better services or lower fees. So Vanguard is the place um, um, to save your money. And also it invests in index funds. So there's no, um, there's no smart, um, you know, people from, um, you know, right out of graduate school that are picking the winners and losers. You just invest in the entire market. That gives you a lot of diversity and it saves you probably one or, you know, 20 to 30 percent on fees. So a Vanguard, um, IRA is where young people should put their money. Or if they're in a 401k, um, people should save the maximum. It's going to hurt a little bit the first couple of paychecks, but if you save the maximum, then your employer will put money in, and that will grow even faster. But make sure that your 401K has a Vanguard option. What recommendations would you share for our older listeners? Many in our audience yeah. are middle to senior yeah. level executives, and yeah. so I'm assuming an age range in the late 40s and up. 
if they have a modest nest egg or they haven't, for whatever reasons, been able to set aside money for retirement, which doesn't seem that extraordinary according to the numbers, yeah. what can they do now? Yeah. So for um, your older listeners, and that could be in the 40s and 50s, you really have to take stock that you have to have an emergency fund and your retirement fund has to be just for retirement. And even though your employer or your bank says that you can take it out whenever you need it for a modest tax penalty, don't listen to them. Uh, pretend that you can't touch it. I'm going to talk to mothers, older mothers who might be listening, because my research has found that mothers are a bit more susceptible to the needs of their children, even if their children are grown up. Mothers are more likely to take money out to help with their children's college funds um, or their or their expenses. Um, in my interviews with the um, Hispanic community, um, mothers would tell me, I wish that I had um, just Social Security because my relatives won't ask me for my Social Security money early. But now that everyone knows I have a 401k, everybody's asking if they can borrow money from me, or I drain it for um, you know for you know for for other children's needs or for other family members' needs. Men are susceptible too, fathers are susceptible too, but mothers seem especially at danger in danger of spending their their retirement money for their kids. So. Um, that's my first let of advice is that the little money that you have, don't touch it um, until retirement. Um, try to save more, you know, and that's more blah, 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 you know, but, you know, everyone knows how to do that. I'm not going to um, repeat that. But this might be helpful um, is um, you can decide what you need and what you don't need. I'll let that be a personal subject, but you can't start that decision until you have a budget. And so everybody, everybody I know, but also research shows that people who have a budget and just count where their money is spent every month are much more likely to save. So people should get into that habit of just counting their income and counting their budget. And you don't need an online estimate or anything fancy. A little notebook or a pad of paper is all you need. Reconcile your checkbook and you'll find places to save, to save money. That is if you have a safe place. If you don't have, if you're older and you don't have a retirement account, every little bit does help. So you, um, I recommend that you start now, um, and open a Vanguard account, an individual retirement account. Now, if you're older and you're in your 60s and you're about ready to lose your job and you, you'll be tempted to take Social Security, but I beg my friends and colleagues who are in their 60s who are tempted to do that, to not do that, to delay collecting Social Security as long as you possibly can. That may mean working a little bit more. Um, it may mean really downsizing. But if you can delay, let's take for an extreme example, collecting Social Security um, to 70 rather than 62, your lifetime benefits will be 35% higher. And your chances of being impoverished uh, when you really have very little choices in your 80s um, is much, much lower. So even if you have $50,000 or $25,000 in your account, you should spend down your IRA first and then collect your Social Security. You talk about setting an account aside, uh, an IRA 
or a 401k, you talked about Vanguard index funds. Mm-hmm. That is still a blend of stocks. Is that correct? Um, so what I recommend if you're young um, to um, get some mutual funds that have stocks and also get a few mutual funds that have bonds. So at Vanguard, you can buy stocks and bonds. They're both risky, but stocks are a lot more risky than bonds, but stocks also pay pay more. If you are about 80-20, 80, 80% stocks, 20% bonds in your 20s, and then in your 30s, you become 70% stocks, 30% bonds, and so forth, and you have the diversity of the whole economy, you you have about the safest asset with the highest rate of return you could possibly get. Now, people in defined benefit plans, traditional pensions, have it a little bit better because they have um, they have real estate they can invest in at low fees. They have private equity, hedge funds. It's a little more diverse. But Vanguard, because of their low fees and because they sell stock funds and bond funds, and as you get older, you're going to move towards the bond funds, you can approximate what a traditional pension once gave, gave people. There's talk right now about a potential bubble taking place in the markets because the markets have been going up so much. People are concerned that it's not a true reflection of the economy. And there's also talk about the bond market being shaky and it being a red flag of a recession Mm -hmm. to come. What can you tell us about that? Yeah. Um, um, So I – I'm a trustee also. I'm a professor, and I'm also a trustee of um, billions of dollars of funds. And we um, don't market time. Like, we don't try to guess whether or not this is a bubble or not. You never know if it's a bubble until afterwards. Our our discipline is to keep a a diversified portfolio and ride anything out. We ride out booms, and we ride out busts. So, I'm not going to give you any advice that's specific to any kind of time period we might be in. I recommend that people do what I do and what my my fund does, and that is to pick an appropriate mix of stocks and bonds and every year rebalance to keep that mix. Keep your, your discipline. Don't let your gut, you know, invest your money. Let your brain invest your money. And a lot of people do invest their money with hunches and guts and, gut fear, and so those are the people that tend to basically buy high and sell low. So my advice is the same whether or not we're headed into a recession, we probably are. The the chances of going into recession the next um, year is probably 50-50. In the next two years, it's probably much greater than 70%. Um, But that doesn't matter. People are going to be saving Throughout that recession, so if you are if you are in a Vanguard fund and you're buying stocks and there's a recession, and you're in your 30s, that's actually great news because you're buying um, stocks at a lower value. Um, so you want to be in the market, whether it's up or down. How do you approach this? Concept. It sounds like it's really easy. Just go get a Vanguard index fund. Yeah. But there are actually a number of choices 
even within the concept of a breakdown of bonds and stocks. And even mm-hmm. if you just go to look at the one company, Vanguard, they have small cap growth <laughs> index funds. Yeah, and easy. My yeah. mid cap and the list goes on and on. How yeah. do you know what to do? Do yeah. you just look at a decade? How do you approach that? Yeah, me um, and and what I and what I recommend is that don't fiddle around with a small cap fund or the large or the um, large cap fund. Just get the broadest index possible. So and and that's really obvious on the Vanguard side. And if you need to talk to an advisor, they'll help you. But the words you want to do is, I want a simple portfolio of, um, I want to, I want to um, buy all the stocks available, and that would be like the Russell 3000, and I want the largest um, number of bonds possible. I forgot what they, and I don't even know what they call that. But you just say you want a simple portfolio of stocks and bonds, and you want a broad index, um, that will, that will be fine. Is and that applicable across the board, Teresa, no matter the age? Yes. Um, the only, yes, it is applicable. It really is. There is just no other strategy that seems to, for the risk or the, the time it takes to think it through, that's worth it. The only difference is how much stocks you're going to own relative to bonds um, in terms of your age. Younger, more stocks. Older, more bonds. And you said that you should adjust that once a year. In what way should yeah. you adjust it? Yes. So once a year and take a, take a month that has no emotion in it. And the month that I picked is February. Um, you're not, um, you're not feeling as guilty as you did in January, you know, for, for spending too much on Christmas. You're not, um, going wild, you know, as you do in November and December. Um, there's nothing to do because it's not the summer. So I pick February and I say, oh, I'm this age. I need 60% stocks. Let's look at my portfolio. Oh, the stock market's gone up so much. I'm now 70% stock. I don't want to do that. I will sell um, and buy bonds until I get back to my target. So everybody needs to have a target and then you rebalance, you know, sell and buy in order to get back to your target. And don't consult economists like me or anybody else about whether or not the stock market is going to go up and down because my expert opinion and everybody's expert opinion is that it will go up and down, um, but you'll never know when. So what you have to do is have a discipline based on your age, how much stocks and bonds you want to have, and then adjust accordingly as you get older. But don't do it more than once a year. Would you give us a quick breakdown starting, say, in your 30s, what kind of breakdown yes. you should be looking at? Yeah, um, this is just really um, approximate because some people are a little more comfortable with risk than not. But to keep it simple, when you're in your 20s, it would be 80-20. When you're in your 30s, 70-30. When you're in your 40s, 60-40. You see where I'm going? When you're in your 50s, it's easy, 50-50. <laughs> When you're in your 60s, I would have fewer stocks, 40%, and 60% bonds, and so forth. It really is that simple. What are these exchange-traded funds that everybody is so fond of, ETFs? Yeah, they are a little fancier um, than just plain index funds. 
Um, they are they're based on a broader uh, on they're based on some derivatives, and they usually charge a higher fee than an index um, fund. No one has given me a good enough argument about why they're better than just index funds. So stick with the index funds. Yeah, and stick with Vanguard. They they charge the lowest fees. There were a number of complaints about their customer service, especially in the last couple of years. Do yeah. you just ride that and cross your fingers, hope that it's yeah. because they're growing too fast? That's exactly what I was going to say. Um, customer service in um, in other places are usually salesmen trying to sell you something <laughs> uh, for their own benefit. And so in that way, they may be more unctuous, they may be more solicitous um, because these brokers, they may remember your birthday. So Vanguard may not remember your birthday, um, but they'll get you into the cheapest, highest um, return funds they can. Um, I would not deal with any broker who remembered my birthday or uh, remembered anything personal about me. I don't want that from them. I don't trust that. So I don't know what's meant by customer service, but they are growing faster than any other place because they're the best deal. So did you mean like they're not answering the for they're not answering the phone or they um, you have to wait on the phone for a long time? There were a number of complaints, some from people with a limited number of assets, some with very large uh, accounts yeah. about the number of days that it took to get transactions sure, to take sure. place. Sure. All variety of things. The, the, those are those are um some growing pains, but not, but, um, you know, so that's, that's growing pains. You might, and that might be some inconvenience, but it's not costly. Um, like a place with better customer service, but are charging you like 20 to 30% of your lifetime savings. It's worth it. I guess that's my bottom line. It's worth it. What about the, the size that they seem to have, or let me restate that, the fact that they now account for a very large part of the market, yeah. is that a concern? Yeah. Well, they're not really a um, they're not really a, a part of the market. They just they broker that you they help you own the market. Um, yeah, I think that it would be a concern if they change into a for profit company. It was then they would be a monopoly and. Um, they could actually, you know, start, you know, not serving people well. But there's enough competition um, to make and to to make them still responsive. Um, there's also their governance structure that every investor is an owner means that automatically they have a fiduciary responsibility to their investor. There's no other investment firm that um, that has that um, that responsibility. And also size means that they can make their trades cheaper. So the size at this point is a real advantage. What would you say to those folks who have 401ks, which seem to be the replacement for the traditional pension plans? What is the best approach there, and do they have the choice of an index fund, as we're discussing? Yeah. Um, So most 401k um, owners or, and providers don't provide an index fund, but it's not because they don't want to. They just don't think of it. The employees will have to um, cajole and plead with their HR directors to put an index fund in their funds, and we're seeing more and more 401ks 
um, have index funds. The, the worst thing about a 401k is that your employer chooses your choices, and then you choose among your employer's choices. You don't have a full choice. So as an employee, you have to actually influence that choice. And I've never come up against um, an employer, and I've never heard about an employer who is resistant um, to providing a, a, um, a index fund. You know, they're just as susceptible to brokers, to, to self, um, self-dealing brokers as, as we are. Um, so if your 401, so check to see if your 401k has a, um, stock index fund or a bond index fund. Um, and if it does, that's where your money should be. And if it doesn't, encourage them to get one of both stocks and bonds. What about IRAs? IRAs, that's easy. You just go to Vanguard. So how would that work? Your IRA yeah. would normally for oh. most people would be in the bank. Do you just yeah. go to your bank? No, no, don't even go to your bank. You don't even have to bother. You just go to Vanguard, tell them that your money is at the bank, and they will transfer it for you. So your um, your bank account will literally be transferred to Vanguard yes, once your, you do that? Yeah, your um, um, your account, your IRA account at your bank will be transferred to um, to um, to Vanguard. This really is helpful to people because a lot of people won't, won't just have a bank, um, Elena. They'll have a um, a friend of a friend or somebody they met at church um, or a broker. Um, I call them the guys because usually when I ask people where they've invested their money, they say, "Oh, I don't know, but I have this guy." Sometimes the guy is a girl, you know, or a gal. Right. Um, but usually when I say, where's your money, they, they get, the answer I get back is somebody's name. And that's actually not where you want your money. Um, and a lot of people are reluctant to, to go to Vanguard that will save them, um, 20 to 30% of their income because they have a human relationship with that guy or that, that gal. And so what you can do is bypass that un, that difficult conversation, which is I'm taking my money away from you and giving it to Vanguard by just having Vanguard do that. Now, most people call Vanguard, arrange for their money to be transferred, and then they email you know their broker to say, thank you very much for all your service, um, but I'm going with Vanguard. And every broker, broker knows their beat when that happens. Um, that industry is going through a lot of dislocation, Elena. A lot of people are being retrained because people don't trust the brokers anymore. When the banks are using the very banks. strong-arm tactics, uh, I've had my bank sort of hijack me while I'm at the bank wow. and force me to talk to a representative wow. of their I can tell you one of the big banks has aligned with uh-huh. the brokerage company, and uh-huh. they literally have a representative in uh-huh. the bank lobby. And to make a deposit, they've hijacked me and forced me to talk to that person because there was a glitch. Oh, my. Yes, exactly. Oh, that's a good one. I know exactly what bank you're talking about and the brokerage firm they bought during the financial crisis. Um, and they're one of the worst. They're, um, I had to... Uh, arm wrestle um, that bank um, to get my mother-in-law's money free from them. And Vanguard did transfer it. I wouldn't even bother. Um, um, I, or I would look them in the face and say, I'm not investing my IRA with you. I'm going to Vanguard. Vanguard seems to shut people up because they see that, 
um, a greater part of every two dollars, you know, more than one dollar that is being saved in retirement is going to Vanguard. It's shocking to me because I just finished reading an entire book <laughs> from someone else who <laughs> wrote a book about retirement, and it's a bestseller. And I couldn't find Vanguard. I thought, well, I just finished Teresa's book, yeah. and she just talked about <laughs> Vanguard so much. Uh, what does this yeah. guy have to say about it? And yeah. there was one mention in the entire, like, 400-page book. Yeah. Yeah, I think I know that book. And I um, um, I have the advantage, you know, of being a professor so that my income comes from students, you know, in our endowment. Um, I don't need to have financial um, – I don't have to have banks come on my show – um, um, pay for my speaking fees. Um, I'm not conflicted. And so that's why I felt I needed to take a year off of my, you know, academic writing t- um, to write this book because I, um, I was um, free from those pressures. And, and, and I'll never take a cent from Vanguard because I'll, I, I can be free with my, with my opinions. And it's a short and easy to read book. I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. That joy is nice. That's nice. Yes, because it's 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 short. It's condensed. If, if there are issues that you want to know more about, you can always go research them. But you you're short and to the point, and you don't put any kind of dressing on it. You call it the way you see it. Yeah, you know, I think um, I, I thank you, Elena. But I, and I made it short actually to make a point is that it really is common sense. Everybody knows it, and I don't need to say that I'm the expert and that you're not because I think the big problem in this system is that people get ashamed really quickly that they either don't know enough or have or didn't start early enough or somehow it's their fault, you know, because they gave money to their children. It really isn't people's fault, and shame doesn't doesn't help. It makes people weak. So I don't want to be part of that by having a big, fat, authoritative book. People know what to do. They just need um, some guideposts, and, and that's what I've, um, I've tried to do. Tell us about this 3% inflation a year. You know, yeah. right now the banks aren't even paying 1% interest. I know. I know. What do you do? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's why, you know, so um, savers are really um, getting hit because the interest, the, the returns are just so much lower um, than they're used to on, you know, on a safe asset. Um, inflation is actually much, much lower than 3%. Um, so that's what, that's a big reason why banks aren't paying very much is they is that inflation really isn't that high. Um, but you bring up a, another really good point is that a bank savings account is not where you want to put your retirement money. You really do want to put um, put that money um, with a little bit more risk because you you don't need it right away. You know you can um, you don't need the liquidity. So you want to sacrifice a little bit of the liquidity which means instant, you know, access to your money, uh, for some risk. And the, the most appropriate place to get risk is our index funds managed by a company that will charge you the few, the, the, you know, the smallest fees, and that's Vanguard. Um, so that's the, that's the best way that an individual can help protect themselves against inflation. What do you say to all of those people out there listening to our conversation who are afraid of 
the stock market and the bond market and any kind of investment that isn't, quote-unquote, safe as in a bank account, CD, even a mutual fund. Yeah, so um, anybody out there who is wanting the safest possible asset has to understand the dangers of the safe asset. And the danger of a safe asset is it doesn't grow at all and that it actually erodes if even there's a little bit of inflation. So you have to take a little bit of risk, and the financial markets are risky. But if you have a diversified, broad-based index fund, you can minimize that risk. The biggest risk you have, though, is not out there, but in between your ears um, and actually in your gut, is you don't make any decisions based on sort of emotion. Um, what you want to have is a discipline, a rule, that says you will always hold the appropriate amount of stocks and the appropriate amount of bonds appropriate to your age. And every month, every year, not when you get news and the headlines are screaming, but just a set time every year where you, um, uh, with a sober cup of coffee, you know, in the middle of the morning, without any um, uh, emotions, rebalance your accounts. Think slow, not fast when it comes to your, um, to your money. Think rules, not hunches when it comes to your money. So set yourself a rule, get the numbers by having a budget, and um, save a lot if you're older and don't have enough. Save consistently in a smaller amount if you're young. And um, you will be able to supplement your Social Security and retire with dignity. That makes me think of Kahneman. I don't know if that's where the thing is. Yes, exactly, exactly where I was going. Right. right. Okay. Right. You know, one of the things that you hear about over and over is that past performance is not a predictor of future performance. How does that relate to this issue of investing, especially in the riskier blend of stocks and bonds? If past performance is not a predictor, then how can we lie that your money is going yeah. to be safe? Yeah, um, well, nothing predicts the future because the future is uncertain. Um, but the best predictors we have are based on the the past and, and some forecast about what big trends are. Right now, the past is a pretty good predictor um, minus a couple of points. <laughs> right. So I'm an economist and I think that global warming and the inequality of wealth and income and the aging of the population, you know, will slow down growth a bit. Um, the baby boomers really fueled um, um, big investments and returns, and um, wars, big wars, also fueled um, investment returns, and and, um, and those really aren't predicted. You know, World War III is not predicted, and a youthful economy is, is really, with large numbers of young people buying is not predicted. Um, so I, I project that the economy will grow, at, um, the worldwide economy in the U.S. will grow about 2% a year. And if you add um, a really um, good mix of, of, of stocks and bonds, I think that if people predict that they'll earn about 6 or 6.5%, returns, you know, um, including inflation, that that would be a pretty good benchmark for planning. That's what I, that's what I use. I never think I'm going to earn seven or eight, um, but it's a little pessimistic to think you'll earn only 4%. So 
aiming for six to six and a half return in this index fund yeah. blend, regardless yeah. of the match, is a, you're in a good place. Yeah, you're in a good place. And I would say six, just because I'm, you know, conservative. One of the things oh, is that, that, is that, is that you meant as a, tar- as a target return? Right. Well, uh, is that what you meant? Yeah. Well, you, don't, you won't have that much um, uh, control over the um, return, but if you're getting about five to seven, you know, you're, you're doing fine. Um, and that's about as best as you can do. The, sa- the savings rate, of course, is something that you have a lot of control over. Um, and, and thereby, you'll need to, um, to ratchet up your, uh, the amount that you save as you, as you get older, especially if you haven't started early. Um, a, a really good strategy is to save your raise. If you get a raise, um, try to actually just maintain your, your current standard of living and save the rest of it. And, of course, the tragedy of that is that for the older adults in our audience, you just exactly. said earlier in the conversation there are that's, no more raises. That's right. It is going. It is um, tough, my brothers and sisters in the audience who are older. Um, the labor market is not as peppy as it is. You're not going to get a raise. Um, but you do have a big brain and lots of experience and wisdom. Um, you can maybe work a second job. Um, you also know not to get into debt. You know, so there are a lot of things that people can do even at an older age to help secure their retirement. One of the things that you mention in the book is the topic of your home and whether it's an asset or an expense, a liability. What can you mm-hmm. tell us about that? Yeah, so um, in most markets, home markets, buying a home is better than renting because you get a, a, a better housing stock if, if, you're a, if you are a um, buyer because the rental housing stock usually isn't as, um, you know, as well maintained. Um, but in a lot of areas, especially cities, renting um, could be a, a much better option. So don't automatically think that buying is what you have to do. But let's say you are buying. Um, it's very important to um, to have a house um, that's appropriate to your lifestyle. Um, lucky older people, some lucky older people, have houses that are too big, um, and they really should um, downsize because the expense of maintaining a big house is higher. But downsizing does cost money. Um, you have to pay a broker, um, and you have to move. You know, so you have to take off like 5 to 10% of your current equity. Uh, what you don't want to do is to get a mortgage at your old age. Um, that that makes no sense. So do whatever you can to not take on any more um, any more debt, and um, um, really know that houses have to be maintained. Um, so even if you own it, you still have a lot of uh, variable costs, not only maintenance, but you also have taxes to pay. But many communities have circuit breakers so that if you're older, your tax rates um, in your tax bill won't go as up, up as much as it is for younger people. So did I answer your question about the house? I, I think uh, I think so. What you're saying is look at your circumstances and the market. And for example, the market that I'm in right now, it's more expensive to rent than it is to own because there's so much so much premium yes. on rental properties. Yes, but if you buy, um, you're really tied to um, to that area, um, and that and that really could cost you um, the ability to move to get a better job. Um, and I know a lot of people who um, don't tell their employers that they buy um, because the employers know that they're locked in and don't give them a raise or a promotion. Wow. 
You know, so there's a lot of other considerations, and especially the if you view your whole role as a worker, um, you have to um, you have to know that the employer would love you to be locked into your community. <laughs> they would love it um, because they have what's called monopsony power over you, and that means they can pay you lower wages. Very quickly, we haven't given a lot of time to that second part of your title, how to know what is enough. What can you yeah. tell us about that? What's the number? Yeah, real quick, um, it's, a, it's a hard answer, though, because people don't have enough. I know on average they don't, but I'll just tell you. If you're 65 and you want to retire and you want to maintain your um, your current standard of living, you should have about eight times what your current cost of living is. So if you spend net of taxes and savings $70,000 per year, um, you'll want about um, $50,000 um, per year. To get that, you'll need eight times um, 50, you know, which is, um, what is that, 400000 Um so you'll need eight times what you're going to, to spend. Um, if you're in your 30s, um, you should have no debt, and you should have about half of your annual income um, saved or about ready to be, um, to be saved when you're 35. Uh, and then there's everything in between. So when you're in your – I mean, you can kind of stair-step it. Um, when you're in your 30s, you, you should have – um, your annual sa- salary saved in your 40s. You should have um, what two times in your, and then it starts to accelerate. In your 50s, you should have four times, and by the time you're 60, you should have eight times. And that is taking into account an estimated average death uh, age of what? Because I've yeah. seen numbers from yeah. 95 to 120. Yeah. Well, so the good news is the bad news is that the longer you live the longer you're going to live, right? So every year that we turn older, every birthday, our life expectancy um, has increased a bit um, because people who are weaker than we are or, you know, um, who are sick have died. Again, in our four, if we move from 39 to 40, um, people have died in their 40s, and so you are a survivor. So as you get older, your needs for more money actually um, and sickeningly actually increases um, because a 90-year-old is much more likely to live to 100 than a 70-year-old is. Does that make sense? Uh, yes, um, absolutely. So it, it, vary, it varies by age. Um, for And the biggest determinants is whether or not you've smoked, um, have diabetes, and then there's some genetic factors that are hard to measure. Um, um if you know if you're a smoker and you have diabetes, you will um, live less long, um, but you'll probably need more money because those diseases um, cost cost money. For purposes of these estimate numbers that yeah. you shared with us, depending on your age range, so I think you said eight times your current cost of living if you're 65. Yeah. That's assuming yeah. that you're going to live to what age? Oh, to about 93. Um, but it doesn't matter if you can buy an annuity, and that insurance company will pay you no matter how long you live. Is that something that you recommend, yeah. annuities? Um, 
You know what? Um, no, <laughs> um, not not unless you're lucky like I and I have one that's um, that is a not for profit. You know, because college professors have it. What I recommend is what Alicia Manel at Boston College recommends, and it's a pretty good rule, which is to just look what the IRS tells you that you can take out that you have to take out every year. Um, so it's like the take out three percent or a little more than four percent as you get older. So let's say you have a lump sum of 500000 When you're 65, you can take out 3%. And as you get older, you can take out, you know, 4%. So a gradual withdrawal um, amount of money, and you probably won't run out either. So a good rule is that you would, you would spend down your 401k by 3 or 4%. The only exception to that is that... Um, that only works if you can delay Social Security. If you can take out 5% or 6% of your IRA and delay Social Security, that's a better deal. Now, where, where does the principle come into these calculations? Are you, are you drawing money from your principle or yeah, is this prin- just interest? Um, well, if you're, if, um, if you're earning uh, 4%, it's just interest. Um, and then you should start um, picking away at your um, principal. So um, you, you should you should actually take money out of your principal every year, um, and, and but do it do it according um, to the to the IRS drawdown. So I guess the best the, the simplest answer to you is that the principal and the investment earnings are both factored in into that minimum distribution. What? suggestions would you share with our listeners, say three to five tips that they should take into account in this journey to retirement? Um, there's not even five, four or five, there's just three. One is um, start accumulating money as soon as you can, which would be today. <laughs> because every dollar you save now will be compounded. So you want to accumulate. The second thing you need to do, the second tip is to invest it well. Stay away from brokers and go to a go to Vanguard. It's the only company out there um, with your with your interests for front and center. Unless of course you're in Thai Craft, which I'm in, or it's called Thai, and that's a uh, that's a um, a very similar system. Um, government workers have thrift savings plan. That's a great system, very similar to Vanguard. Um, but you want to accumulate um, in a very smart way. That means you have the rule of um, of just rebalancing once a year and not worrying about the, the risk of the stock market because you can only diversify against it. You can't control it. And the third rule is to delay collecting Social Security as long as you can. And, of course, the most difficult part there, Mm -hmm. even if you manage the first and the third, is this investing well part. Yes, Yes, because there's a lot of people out there who don't want you to, um, who tell you advice that is not in your self-interest. Um, and that goes to buying houses, you know, um, credit card debt, student loan debt, and savings. So it's nothing short of predatory um, in, for, for most people, and you need to um, protect yourself against that. I, just, I, I know it sounds pessimistic, but, I, but it, is, it is a problem in this 
um, in our system. For those people who are listening to us and saying there's no way that I'm going to be able to make this happen, who are thinking of fleeing the country, and I'm (laughs) shocked by how many people are retiring overseas, what would you say? Yeah, so I I find that it's not, there are a lot of people you might know, but it's not really a strategy that most people do. They don't even leave the state or their community because aging in place is usually the healthiest thing that people can do, you know, unless your place is really falling apart um, because of your friends and your social, in your social and, and physical and emotional connections. Um, but for those people who are, are fleeing, um, you can't take your Medicare with you. <laughs> Um, so you have to worry about your health insurance. Thank you, Teresa, for joining us. Okay. All right, Elena, I'm glad it worked out. Thank you. And to our, thanks. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Teresa Gillarducci, who is author of How to Retire with Enough Money and How to Know What is Enough, who discussed her book. Visit Teresa on the web at teresagillarducci.org and on Twitter at T. Gillarducci. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicNPR.com. That's editor at HispanicNPR.com.